Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Ayana, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Or I should say, welcome back to the welcome Twimmel back. AI Podcast. Yes, it's exciting. A lot has happened since we last talked. I think it's been like three years. It, almost to the day. It was February 2018. Oh, a lot has happened. Like a lot in the whole world has happened since then. <laughs> That's right. And considering that 2020 was like 10 years in and of itself, it was like 12 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I agree. I agree. So when we last spoke, and in fact, at the time of this conversation, you are chair of the School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Tech. but we're recording this on a Thursday, and on Monday, you start your role at The Ohio State University. Congratulations, first and foremost, on that. Thank you. I'm actually really excited about this, this next transition in my life, in my career, and the things that I can do, especially around engineering and you know access to the wonderful world of engineers. Awesome. Awesome. You know, I think I'd like to have you start with uh, an introduction. You did an introduction and a little bit of background last time we did this. I'd love for folks who haven't had an opportunity to get to know you to hear a bit of your story. And then we'll jump into the main topic of our conversation for today and much of your research since the last time we spoke, which is your recently published book, Sex, Race, and Robots. How to Be Human in the Age of AI. Uh, but before we dive into that, tell us a little bit about your background and story. Okay, so um, I'm basically a, a hybrid engineer computer scientist. But at the end of the day, I'm a roboticist. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter my title or my job. I'm a roboticist. I, I design, build the hardware as well as the algorithms to make my machines intelligent and interact with people. And so started off as a robotics researcher at NASA, then continued on as a professor researcher at Georgia Tech. And the key is people interacting with robots to really improve their quality of life, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, whether it's sending robots to glaciers to figure out the global warming and climate change. So I've been doing a lot of stuff. And again, for those who are classically AI, you know, robotics is a lot of times they call it embodied AI. Right, mm-hmm. which is AI with the body means robotics. But I actually think of it as, you know, robotics and then there's virtual robotics, which is AI is virtual robots, i.e., physical robots without the body. And so I think of AI <laughs> and robotics tightly coupled, but you know, robotics is the, the lens through which I see things. Nice, nice. I was mentioning before we got rolling that this example that you gave in our last conversation, which really centered on your research into the relationships between humans and robots, is probably one of my most frequently quoted moments from the podcast. I tell people all the time about this story that you told about your research that showed that for whatever reasons, humans look to robots as like authority figures. And the example you gave was robots that ostensibly were set up to lead people out of burning buildings, you and your research program them to do really crazy things like bang up against walls for periods of time. And humans would, in many cases, just sit there waiting for them to do the right thing because of that relationship that we have with robots. 
Yeah, maybe expand on that e example briefly for folks that didn't uh, catch that interview, which I recommend they go back and check out. Yeah, it's, it's actually to this day, it's it was the most exciting uh, study that the group did, mainly because it broke all of our hypotheses. Uh, mm -hmm. So basically what happened was we were trying to examine what would happen when uh, humans interacted with a robot that was faulty. That was the original premise. And we wanted yeah. to create an environment where it was, you know, high risk, time critical, so that people would basically be more reactive. They didn't have time to think. And so emergency evacuation fit that because we can set off the alarms, we can fill the building with smoke, and you're going to go into this reactive mode. I got to get out. I got to get out. I think it might be a fire. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was the scenario. We actually had people come. We had them go into a conference room, close the door, and fill the building with smoke, set off their fire alarms, and you know, people would get up, open the door. Oh, it's false. And then they would be like, oh, my gosh, like, crap. There's, like, smoke, and the fire alarms are going. And, of course, like, and I think I imagine I smell, like, fire, right? And so, of oh. course, <laughs> you know, they're in this highly sensitive state. And then we introduced a robot. And the robot would direct them in the wrong direction. The robot would have them basically stand while they, while the robot would go in circles and you know bang up against the wall because uh -huh. we wanted to make sure that people realized that the robot was making a mistake. Yeah. And people followed the guidance of the robot. And again, it broke our hypothesis because we're like, okay, clearly at some point, you know, people are going to go back into their deliberative thinking mode. And they just were in this heightened reactive state of, well, the robot must know the best. It, it must be connected. You know, I must follow the guidance of the robot because it is all knowing. Yeah. It, it, it surprised us in many ways. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I'm not sure it's the topic for this podcast, but your conversations with the IRB to get that study approved must have been. <laughs> I, so I will say it was not the hardest IRB, but it was the first one where it was full board review. Um, uh -huh. Since then, you know, I have challenged the norms and have had a number of full board reviews, okay. uh, but that one was the first one and it was, it was a doozy. And in fact, the study we came up with was not the original one that was proposed. So that's a whole nother story. Okay. Uh, so your focus since then, to a large degree, and of the book is more looking at, you know, issues of trust and bias and, and other things. Is there a relationship between that prior work and even this study and your interest in trust and bias and, and those topics? Yeah. So the work that we do now, my group does now, I would say builds on uh, that work. So one of the things we continue doing was looking at this aspect of trust and, um, you know, are there ways that we can break trust? And, and we call it over-trust. And just kind of experimenting with that. But then what happened was I started seeing that these systems, these AI systems were being deployed much more widely in the world and society. And, you know, as a researcher, I'm like, you know, no one's looking at the trust that this is, you know, people are going to trust the decisions of, you know, the AI healthcare assistant and the chat bot and the social media. And so when I started looking at much more what I would call the virtual robotics you know, non-embodied AI, and looking at this element of trust, and we started doing research in that, then came up to this aspect of, and these systems have biases. And, and when I say biases, basically, they have slightly different outcomes depending on the characteristics of the person. And so that leads to trust, because if like, I'm like, if people are just trusting these systems, and they're going to have different outcomes, that means that we are going to be in trouble at some point. And so that's where it started to, I would say, augment and expand mm -hmm. this aspect of trust. 
but then also looking at the biases and trying to not only understand it, but also mitigate it so that we are not basically sheeps that are at the mercy of the systems that are out there. Yeah, yeah. So we we talk quite a bit about these broad issues of trust and bias in the context of AI, what I would call AI, what you would call virtual robots. And I'm curious as a way to start or, or go a little deeper if your experience as a, in what ways your experience as a roboticist changes the way you attack, approach, think about, you know, these issues, you know, beyond some of the the obvious connections to your prior work that we just discussed? Yeah, so I think one of the things as a roboticist, um, and, and just so you know, I consider myself a roboticist and an AI connoisseur, AI expert, but I don't necessarily consider myself just an AI. You know, my first neural network was, you know, designed in 1986, right? So I did computer vision. Of course, it was like with a frame grabber, and, you know, people don't even know what that is sometimes, right? <laughs> so I've always done like, you know, what we call artificial intelligence. Um, yeah. But because I dealt with hardware, it was much more of this, you know, robotics and AI. And so what that has taught me and, and why I look at these problems a little differently is that I understand the real world implications. Because mm-hmm. when you're dealing with hardware, you are always very conscious that these robots function in a real world with like physics. And so when I look at even just a classical, you know, virtual AI or non-embodied AI, I'm also thinking about what are the physics. And in the virtual space, the physics are slightly different. The physics are about interaction with other people and the AI agents, which is an element of this. And so I think about it differently because I look at it from that engineering perspective of it's not just the system, it has to interact within an ecosystem that has laws and rules that you can't change, but you have to deal with them. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the main ideas or the main way you organize the, the book? Yes. So each of the chapters has a theme and the themes are tightly linked to an AI concept, but then an, also an issue that's deal, dealt with, are we dealing with in terms of socialization and things like that? So as an example, when I talk about, you know, the biases in voice recognition, I link it to our AI assistants and Alexa and Siri and things like that. And so I can Mm -hmm. link those two together so that people not only understand why these systems have biases, but also what they can do to hopefully mitigate them slightly so that we can understand ourselves. So, and this also links to my research as well. So I'll give you an example. I do not believe that we should gender or add gender to AI and robotic systems. And yet, if you look at most commercial systems that come out, right, they come with a default and typically is female, but a default voice. And so if I link it to the research we've shown, we've actually shown that people treat these AI systems irrespective of the gender that's applied exactly the same in terms of their belief, their guidance, their ability to take the decision. The difference is is that people will gender it in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. So if I decide that I'm going to do a neutral kind of, or try to do a neutral gendered voice, Mm -hmm. people will basically categorize it primarily either as male or female automatically. And yet they won't treat it differently if I decide to gender it as male or I decide to gender it as female as a developer. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've actually shown that. And, you know, we've shown what happens if there's a cognitive mismatch, like it should be a a surgeon, robot surgeon, and we put a gender as a female, will people be less likely to use it or trust it? 
The thing is, is no, they may feel uncomfortable and they may say, well, you know, I feel slightly uncomfortable because, you know, we look at Likert scale, but they follow the direction exactly the same. So it's about the robot. It's uh-huh. about the intelligence that is actually the overriding factor. And how we feel is actually worth nothing because we still treat it and interact with it, again, this trust aspect, in exactly the same way. So we so, should stop adding gender. So if our behaviors and in interacting with the robots or the AI don't change when we do add gender, what is your argument for why we shouldn't add gender? I don't think we should add gender, but I do think that we should have the choice, right? So when we have these systems, you know, have the the different genders, female, male, neutral, you know, non-binary, like have them programmed, but don't provide, like don't default, right? Like when it comes out in the default voice, it should be no, it should just be, would you like to have a gender? Yes or no, right? Mm -hmm. And, And actually walk a person through one, it makes you start thinking, hey, do I need to have a gender? Like as a human, as a user, Wait, do I do I want a gender for my robot? Like no one's ever asked me that. You know, I really appreciate you, company, asking me what I want. Right? It one, and you talk about PR, that's a great thing. Like now you're giving me a choice as a consumer. And then the other thing is then I can create an environment and interact with an agent that I'm more comfortable with anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's from your perspective, it's primarily about a choice, but also about kind of prompting us to think about these things when we're interacting with robots as opposed to interacting with a brand that has been, you know, where these choices were made for us. Correct. Correct. Because I think one of the things in in the book I talk about this is that I worry that we are losing our autonomy. We are losing our ability to make these choices and that they are being uh, sort of, I would say, forced on us. And again, because, you know, I've looked at this aspect of trust, we don't even really realize that we are being manipulated in this way, but we are. We we definitely are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What what's another example beyond the the voice domain? Yeah. So um, another one was around search. So a, a lot of times people believe that when we do a search, whatever our newest search engine or startup are the traditional ones, that that's truth. But you know, it's not truth. <laughs> It certainly is not truth. It's right. It's the majority's perception of is really what it is. Uh And the thing is, is that uh, because of that, it it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And actually, I did a couple of examples. So I know, and and anyone can try this, like, I believe I'm doing a search. We just had this whole political issue in terms of, you know, elections. If someone who had been targeted as a Democrat, if I actually said, who is running for president? Do you know your search criteria would have showed you automatically all Democratic choices? If you had identified as Republican, i.e. they had modeled you as Republican, it would have showed you your Republican choices, right? Mm-hmm. So that basically means that my truth maintains to be the truth, which we, of course, know that that's not true. And so mm-hmm. I would argue, like in that case is, why don't we force ourselves to get out of a box, right? Like force, when we're doing our search engines, Make it very specific. Put in, you know, Republican, who is running, right? Democrat, who is running? Like, let's us have that power to be very explicit. But of course, that wouldn't happen. And I give examples of that, like politics, soccer. So if you want to do world championship soccer, guess what comes up first? Like, because what? Women can't play soccer? 
Like mm-hmm. it's it's an automatic default because there's an assumption that of course you you must be looking for the men's World Cup championship. Interesting. So is the book primarily treating this from a mass market, for lack of a better term, perspective, or is it a technical book? Or yeah, so it is a mass market for I would say intellects. Uh, because one of the things when, like with all these things, when I talk about language and voice, you know, I actually give the the English definition of what's going on, how this is done, how, you know, voice files are extracted, what are the sequences, you know, what are we looking at extracting, right? So there's some technical details, but not, we're not deriving equations, but enough that you're like, oh, now I understand how this happens. Same thing with facial recognition, you know, talk about, you know, facial action units and, and then, you know, some of the controversy around Eckerman and, and, you know, universal basic emotions, you know, so kind of give a feel for the technical behind it, mm-hmm. but then go into the, and this is what's happening in, in general. Can you elaborate on that point? Uh, universal basic emotions? Yes. Oh, so my group does facial recognition quite a bit, linking to emotion recognition. And so there's always been this controversy. So back in the day, famous researcher that um, we kind of build on that had identified that there are universal emotions, basic emotions, happy, Mm -hmm. sad, angry, and so on. Mm -hmm. And not only are there these basic emotions, but you can recognize them based on features and characteristics in your face. So there's these action units around muscles. And if you can extract all of these nuances, then I can automatically figure out what your emotions are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of the controversy has been, one, like whose basic emotions? And there's been some studies that have shown that it doesn't translate in terms of you know other places, na- nationalities, things like that. It's also been shown that it's not universal for age. Example, older adults are the way that their face is structured and just the age don't exhibit the same kind of action units just because, you know, it's different. They they have age, you know, behind them and experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also been shown that kids, there are some basic emotions that come from survival, but they're not all like, you know, kids will uh, be happy right? Mm -hmm. Kids will be fearful, survival, but they don't, a contempt, as an example, is learned. Like babies and toddlers do not understand contempt, but at six, you understand contempt. Now, why is that? It's because Mm -hmm. we've we've teached it into, you know, our kids because we've seen it. And so there's a whole controversy of like all of our systems that we have out there based on emotion recognition, there are already derived based on concepts that are not correct or universal, but they're professed to be. Mm -hmm. Do you get into this issue that still recurs frequently on Twitter? AI is biased only because of data versus AI is biased because of models and data and that whole thing? I read all of the Twitter conversations. (laughs) Uh, Let's put it that way. And I am of the camp that is not just the data. It, you know, the data is part of the equation, but it's it's the data, it's how it's labeled, it's the parameters that are used to process, it's how the outcomes are measured, it's the filtering methods we use, it's what we decide in terms of, you know, what's our holdout set. It's like 
every single element of the learning process has the ability to introduce elements of bias. Data is one. And if you address the data aspect and bias, then you help mitigate some of the biases, but it doesn't eradicate it. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that this is such a virulent topic? Uh, why is it so important to some folks that it's only the data that because they then, bias? Because then they can they know how to fix it, right? That's the whole thing. And then it becomes, well, it's not my problem. I'm the algorithm developer. I uh-huh. don't collect the data, so it's not my fault. And it's so easy, you know, as, and I'm a developer, you know, and I don't like collecting data either, but I have to. And, it, you know, it's so lovely to be able to say, well, look, my algorithm is perfect. And if those folks could get, get their act right, like, I don't have to do anything. And so I think it's some of it is this fact of not taking ownership and not taking responsibility for the outcome. And I think that's why I'm on this proponent of is not just the data, because everyone who touches the system has a responsibility to make sure that it works and works for everyone equally. And if you're not part of the, like they say, if you're not part of the solution, then you might as well get out the kitchen and find another career. <laughs> so beyond the examples, is there a prescriptive element of the book as well? There is. And, and most of the, the prescriptive elements are uh, things that we can do individually to try to, you know, do a little bit of our own correction. You know, as an example, when you know, I, t- I mentioned the thing about voice and I said, hey, why don't you actually go in and turn the voice to a different voice and just use it? And, you know, I say, you're going to feel uncomfortable and you will feel uncomfortable. But, you know, just like, you know, we don't like certain foods when we were young and, you know, our mom or dad made us eat it. And then all of a sudden we're adults. We're like, oh, my gosh, I love Brussels sprouts. Right. It'll be the same thing. We, we can retrain ourselves. And so I give examples just on, you know, how to be an advocate. So I talk a little bit about Black Lives Matter and predictive policing and, you know, how what you can do as a user so that you are not providing data to help with those elements and, and things like that. So there are more of the things you can do if you're not a programmer or a developer so mm-hmm. that you can help the systems and help the developers and help the companies figure it out. In the case of BLM and predictive policing, what is, what's the recommendation there? So with that one, it was actually a very positive chapter because it was one that talked about how with the last summer, summer of unrest, how everyone was really part of the solution. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the first time I'd seen where people were like, I may not understand what your experience is, but... I want to be part of figuring out how to fix this, mm-hmm. right? And, and so that chapter was actually more of a, of a positive of, you know, here's predictive policing and all the negatives, but then, you know, look what happens when we are all basically looking at a common cause. And if you know, the result of that was there was a, it's still going on a, a memoratorium, you know, a pause on facial recognition for, you know, policing and surveillance and, awesome. you know, some of, Yes, right? Like that mm-hmm. was the result. And so that that chapter is really about, you know, what power we have as a community to actually say, look, we are pushing back because we do need to make sure that these things are solved before we become too much in this, okay, I've been manipulated and, you know, I can't, I don't care because I'm using it and I can't live without it kind of scenario. Mm-hmm. Do you also have uh, advice or recommendations for us as practitioners? 
So on the practitioner aspect, uh, most of the advice has to do with taking responsibility of not basically saying, well, it's the, the ethicists have to do it, or we need an ethics board to fix it, or it's the data, or it's the coders. So a lot of the advice is lean into it, take the responsibility. When you are designing an algorithm, ask the questions of why and what is it that I'm doing and should I do it? Right. A lot of times, and I give examples of applications that have come out, and it's just like, why would you even think that was a good idea? Why would you put an app that automatically makes women nude? Like, why? Like, why in the world would you even think that that was a good idea? And so I kind of dribble a lot of that and then talk about, you know, what happens when you do this is you get this negative press or your company goes bankrupt or regulations happen and then you can't do anything. And so I give, examples of what happens when, as developers, we don't take it as a responsibility. Basically means that someone else will, and it's not pretty when that happens. Right, right. I'm curious, as you are transitioning into your new role at the Ohio State University, you know, what way does does it change for you? Does it change the amount of research you're doing? Were you you know, supervising research or doing, you know, hands-on research at Georgia Tech, or were you already beyond that in your chair position? How does your your world shift? Yeah. So when I became chair, I thought, you know, everyone said, oh, your research is going to start dying and, you know, you're not going to be able to do anything. And somehow I inherited four students as chair over three years, four PhD students. (laughs) So I don't know what happened, but I will tell you the way that my research has shifted is I've done a lot more in the, the AI space than the hardware robotics space because mm. it's easier to deploy virtual robotics you know, online than it is going into a home and having to have a physical participant interact with a physical device. It's just harder to do that. It's much easier. Yeah. And so I've, I've seen a shift over the last three years. So where I am now, I, I will just continue. I'm comfortable with what we're doing. We have some great stuff. I have a student that's looking at the role of deception and the pros and cons, because, you know, if you think about, you know, people talk about these things that are online, the chat bots and social media, they are using a form of deception, right? Like we don't use that word because it feels scary, but come on, let's, let's, let's call a cat a cat. And so we're actually, we're going to lean into this and, and basically show what is deception and what it's used for and how it can sway human behavior, but then also ways of looking at the benefits of it, but then also how do you ensure that people are giving consent and they understand in all of this. So some interesting, interesting threads, because again, it's, it's a touchy kind of thing. You know, would you, if someone told you after you use the system that it had lied to you, even though it was for your own good, how would you react? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you think that this shift that you described in your own research, shifting towards AI because the virtual world is easier than the embodied world, do you think that that is happening broadly? And and does that ultimately slow down advancements in robotics, physical robotics? So I would say no, only because I've always been, you know, an application-based researcher, which Mm -hmm. meant that I've always been on the border of you know, how do we deploy? And my deployment when I have the physical hardware is just a small in. So my samples, my subjects are usually smaller. Um, but I've always been of the, you know, I very rarely did Wizard of Oz. 
you know, I was one that was like, ah, I know the hardware is going to crap out on us, but you know what? We're putting it in the field and we will just deal with it. You know, bring your, your computers and your laptops so we can program in real time. Right. Uh-huh. Like I've always been that kind of person. Yeah. Um, and I don't think a lot of roboticists are necessarily like that. And so playing in the playground with the robot, with the <laughs> hardware, they'll still continue because, you know, I will tell you out of all the great experiments we have and I can publish in terms of studies, we had just as many that failed because we tried it out with like real people in real world environments. And we thought, yeah, that sure doesn't work because people don't behave quite the way we thought. Mm-hmm. So where do you see the, the field broadly going over the next few years? So one of the things that's really exciting to me is the fact that this whole world of, of robotics and AI has accelerated. I mean, it's it's been amazing to to be here witnessing it. And, you know, again, you know, my first neural network was in 1986. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and then, you know, everything was slow. You're like, yeah, no one's ever going to use this in like real life. Uh, <laughs> and so it's really exciting to be here where people are using, you know, the theories and the algorithms and the applications that have come from researchers and come from the lab. And it's accelerating. It's, it's actually ramping up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just see that we are you know, on the other side of that bend. And so the bend is basically... The rate, I think, of adoption, the rate of acceleration is just going to continue at a, a pace that, in some regards, will be thrilling and exciting as a developer. Um, in other regards, it's a little bit uh, terrifying if we don't resolve some of the issues before that happens. Right, right. So does that translate into a uh, you know, set of predictions around you know things that we're all waiting for, like autonomous vehicles and flying robots and, and stuff like that. It's, you know, still early enough in the year that we can, you know, probe you for your kind of predictions for the next few years. Yeah. So, I, you know, the autonomous robots, you know, I remember the first prediction, at least with autonomous vehicles back in, I don't know, 2017, maybe. Uh-huh. It was like, oh, by 2017, then it was 2018, <laughs> right? So I'm not going to make that prediction, but I will make a prediction around personalized assistance. Mm-hmm. So if you ever remember, there was a movie called Her back in the yeah. day. Like that, where you have someone who can like interact with you, that can do everything behind the scenes, can reschedule your appointments, can call your doctor because it's time for your annual checkup and do all of that to make your lives easier. I see that coming out in the next five years just because all those elements exist. And right now it's about how do you integrate it all together into one system and how do you make it so that it's personalized to the individual? But the the elements exist right now. So that's one prediction where you'll have your, your real personalized assistant that basically just has to model you for two weeks and then knows everything about you, knows what you like to eat, what you like to drink, where you like to go, who you like to call, you know, what hours you like to wake up and go to sleep and and things like that. In terms of the autonomous vehicles, I think we are going to have the majority of the functions that are in, you know, what we consider autonomous vehicles in the vehicles. Now, whether the switch has been pulled, that's the question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting that even the uh, your example of the personal assistance and in particular the movie Her kind of ties back into the issues that we started out talking about, sex and race and robotics. Um, 
thinking of a conversation that I had in the context of the Coded Bias movie with Meredith Broussard and Deb Raji and Shalini. And I think it was Meredith who the, the, her movie came up and she was like, yeah, I hate that. I hate the idea of that movie and that we keep recreating this virtual female sex slave, if you would. And there are clear implications for the topics that you're raising in the book in the future that you're seeing around personal assistance. And I, this whole thing is I hate that fact, but the fact is, is that's where we're going, right? I mean, it's, it's like one of these things, it's like, yeah, I wish that, you know, A, B, C, D, but, you know, that's where we are going. That's what's happening, especially because we really don't have the, we, we just don't have the ability or we really haven't leaned into ensuring that we necessarily do it right. But that's what's going to happen. I mean, but think about it. Like we as people, are, are actually fairly lazy. And it's not because we're like lazy, lazy. It's actually because we exert energy when we think and we exert energy when we do these other things that, you know, are repetitive, are boring, right? So mm-hmm. we're, when I say we're lazy, it's that we want to conserve our energy. Conserving energy means we live and we breathe and we can devote our attention to things that allow us to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so things like a personalized assistant, what happens is it allows us to focus on the things that one, we enjoy And then the other things that keep us alive versus the things that we're doing because we happen to live in this world of having to make sure that, you know, kids go to school and having to make sure that, you know, we drive an hour sometimes to a location, right? That's the environment. That's not necessarily what we enjoy doing. So if we can strip all those things that we don't enjoy, I would tell you, I would probably 80% of people would say, sure, I would love that. Yeah. Well, here's to the idea that your book helps shift that future in the direction that we want to see it and, you know, in a way that's more equitable. Yes, let's hope. (laughs) Ayana, thanks so much for taking the time to catch up. Congratulations on the move and the book and all your recent successes. Uh, Wonderful to chat with you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.